Live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 26, The Metters vs. Daimajin Strikes Again. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the curator of the vault, Nathan Marchand, and joining me again for the final entry of the Dimachine trilogy and the last of what I'm calling the Dimachine days are my friends, Joe and Joy Matter. Welcome. Hi. Hi, everyone. Yes, and hopefully you'll sound better this time. I got a new microphone for the studio here. And there was great rejoicing. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> You've been having a, a heck of a weekend here on the island from what I've been hearing. Well, the board of directors had us on a pretty rigorous tour schedule. And yes, they did want to have tea with us. We had to cancel this time. Maybe next time. Yes, and also, listeners, as you'll probably hear on occasion during this broadcast, the dogs came back as well. We have Teddy Kong and Bitzilla, although I noticed Bitzilla's a little bit better behaved this time around. He's sitting on your lap having a good time. Yes, he is. He uh, definitely was like, I want some snuggle time. Believe it or not, dogs snuggle. So, yes, he's enjoying it, and uh, hopefully we can get through this without too many interruptions. <laughs> Yeah, there was, there was too many tours, so the dogs felt neglected this weekend. So. They really did. Well, maybe if you weren't such a, well, let's just say a not nice person, that wouldn't be a problem. Did you go to the infirmary to have that uh, ankle wound looked at? I'm just saying. That was not for my dog. My dog doesn't do that. <laughs> well, I hope not. <laughs> Unfortunately, it seems like Bitzilla is picking up on the animosity, perhaps? The tension <laughs> between Possibly, the two of you? You know, like most people, he's pretty good about. But if, if he thinks that, you know, someone's like a threat to me or to Joe or makes me upset, then he gets a little bit more... Aggressive. Aggressive, especially on this island. It seems to bring out that, you know, the kaiju in him. Yeah, uh, just like I was telling Michael Hamilton in the previous episode, because he asked me, are those kaiju dogs? And I said, no, they're not kaiju dogs, but they definitely think they're kaiju. They definitely think they're kaiju, but they also think that they're lap dogs, including the one that's not. Yeah, it's a little astonishing and ironic. Very. <laughs> but yes, as I mentioned at the beginning of our little bit of banter right here, you guys are back for the third and final entry in the Dimachine trilogy. Dimachine strikes again. Yes, Jimmy, I know I was saying the title wrong for several episodes. It's not Dimachine Strikes Back, it's Dimachine Strikes Again. Where were you when we were doing those broadcasts and you didn't correct me? Oh, a likely excuse, distracted by the Star Wars reference. Right. Right. <sighs> by one reference? Yeah, excuses, excuses. Whatever. All right, you two. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to... Can we please talk about the movie? Hey, I was trying to talk about the movie. He keeps bringing other stuff up. Well, then let's let... Let it go, as you would like to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. I did it again! 
I really need to work on this habit. I say that every time, but I'm going to whip this. I'm really going to make myself whip this. Anyway, today's Toku topic will be on Kami. And now, back to the show. Oh, hey, okay. I'm ready to talk about the movie. Okay. Well, first... And all of its glory. Yes. Well, first, we need to go to the screening room. And while we're there in the screening room, through the magic of podcasting, I will be reading Jimmy's entertaining info dump as per my contractual obligations. So, let's go do that. Let's do it. Daimajin, or just Majin, is a wrathful but just Kami who resides on a mountain as a statue. He uses a hawk as an avatar to watch humans. Villagers fear that they will be cursed if they step onto his mountain. He allows Shurochiki and his friends to cross, even using his hawk to defend them from Arakawa samurai. When besieged by Shurochiki, he directly intervenes, unleashing his full wrath. Shurochiki is the brave and determined son of a woodcutter who is enslaved by Lord Arakawa. He gathers several friends and journeys across the countryside to free his father and the other slaves. His stubborn and compassionate younger brother, Sugi, follows him and his party to help save their father. Their friends Kinta and Daisuku are adventurous and clever boys hoping to rescue their own relatives from the slave camp. Arakawa is the ambitious and warmongering warlord forcing slaves to mine sulfur to create gunpowder for firearms. His violent and authoritarian second-in-command Daisen Matsunaga oppresses slaves and sends samurai to recapture escaped slaves or the boys. While Daimajin's presence is felt in some of the first half of the film, the human and kaiju plotlines are distinct until Daimajin gets more proactive in helping the boys toward the end, at which point they unify. Arakawa is the problem. Sanpei escapes his taskmasters but dies later. Three samurai are dispatched to find him and later pursue the boys. Daisuku's older brother, Shohachi, tries to escape, but he is captured and thrown into a sulfur pool. After Kinta is swept away by a river, the remaining boys succumb to hypothermia, so Suruchiki prays to Daimajin and offers his life to save his brother and friend. The samurai find them, but are attacked and killed by Daimajin's hawk. The problem is solved, as usual, when Daimajin comes to life in response to Tsuruchiki's prayer. He teleports to the boy and saves him from the snow. He then attacks Arakawa's fortress, destroying it and slaughtering soldiers, and kills the evil lord. The script was once again written by Tetsuro Yoshida and is a simple and straightforward journey. The story focuses on the four boys, but does have some minor subplots with other characters. The special effects were once again directed by Yoshiyuki Kuroda, and he used some of the same techniques he utilized in the two previous films. These included soupmation, animation, miniatures, and back projection, among others. A standout for this production is the beautiful Japanese scenery where much of it was filmed. Even so, the soundstage sets are also impressive. Admittedly, the snow is obviously fake, but it doesn't detract from the film. Thanks to the quick production, the special effects lack the polish of the previous two films, what with Daimajin obviously lifting buildings on wires? That being said, the film's production values remain solid. This film is lighter than the previous two thanks to its child protagonist, but it pulls no punches by having Kinta and Shohachi die, maintaining the trilogy's serious tone and heavy gravitas. With a living statue and its all-seeing hawk avatar, this has the most fantasy elements of the trilogy. This is a somewhat experimental film in that it broke away from the formula established in the first. 
The setup remains the same, but it uses child protagonists, which weren't common in kaiju films yet, and has them embark on a journey more like a traditional fantasy story. That being said, this film reinforces the style of the first Daimajin with its story, themes, and tone. This film was made to cash in on the continued success of the first films. While it has child protagonists, it was meant to entertain adult audiences for both Chambara or samurai films and kaiju films. Box office and budget numbers are unavailable, but it was made on a slightly reduced budget compared to the previous two. It has a 6.2 score on IMDb with 510 ratings. While it has faded into obscurity more than the previous films in the trilogy, it's held in high regard by kaiju fans who have seen it. It was erroneously released as Return of Daimajin by ADV Films in the late 1990s and early 2000s, and later under the title Wrath of Daimajin. Interestingly, the film was never dubbed until released on Blu-ray by Mill Creek Entertainment. There are a handful of forces at play. Daimajin causes disasters like floods and blizzards that devastate villages, so the people in turn pray for mercy. The threat of Daimajin's curse on those who enter his mountain is feared by some and disregarded by others. The boys battle the environment, facing mountains, rivers, and snow. There is some interpersonal conflict in their group, with Daisuku often being called Slowpoke and Tsuruchiki refusing to let Sugi join them. Daimajin does at times seem indifferent toward the safety of innocent humans. The themes in this film are a bit different from the rest of the trilogy. The boys' bravery inspires villages to rise up against Arakawa. Familial bonds are celebrated. Tyranny and oppression are denounced. Respect and reverence toward gods is presented as a positive. The boys use cleverness to outwit Arakawa's samurai and survive. Tsuruchiki's willingness to sacrifice himself awakens Daimajin, who pours out his wrath on the villains to enact justice. All right! Let's close out the Daimajin days with some Toku Talk. Alrighty, guys. This has been a little bit of a journey for the two of you. So I have to ask, fresh out of the screening room, what'd you think of this one? I don't know if the first one or this one's my favorite. But I definitely felt like the plot made way more sense, except for the very beginning, and then they kind of explain it. So, I mean, in that sense, I really enjoyed it. And because they totally did something different with the main characters, which I know we'll get into, but it was kind of a different feel. Very much so. And I felt like it actually set it apart better than the second one did from the first one. Like, it seems like more of like a another story not rehashed. Yeah, the setup is pretty much the same, but beyond that, the characters are very different and the story ends up being really different too. Yeah, I enjoyed that it went back more to the first one in the sense of the statue that comes to life, the the god, uh, is more of a demon. He will go after anyone who goes on his mountain and then the kids sort of plead for their life saying, hey, we don't want to disturb you, we're just trying to save our family. Yeah, we're just passing through. We're passing through. Please don't curse us like you would normally do. And he responds to that. Yeah, it's interesting because the guy at the beginning who managed to escape from the bad guys. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, I think he said he crossed the mountain 
So I guess there is a bit of that implication that since he dies shortly after he gets back to the village, that it wasn't just because of how badly he had been beaten and all that by the bad guys. It could have also been because of Machine's curse. The Machine curse, yeah. So I did enjoy that aspect. I also enjoyed the the small Lord of the Rings aspect of the children. I know. I know. I was, t- I was talking with you guys about that as we were going through this. One of the things that makes this feel really different is that it actually feels like a traditional fantasy story. Definitely. I really li- and I think that's part of the reason why I also really liked it was because it had a different feel to it. Mhm. I mean, yeah, it's about Daiju, Daiju, sorry. Daimajin. Uh, Daimajin, whatever, you know, works. <laughs> Be glad it was me and not Jimmy. <laughs> yes, very true. <laughs> but I really enjoyed it because it was different and it was more of an adventure. It was these kids, you know, braving the elements, not really knowing if they're going to survive, but they try the best they can to, to save their families. They're very heroic kids, very heroic boys, because none of the adults want to do anything about what's going on. And they just say, you know what? I'm going to, you know, Surukichi, he says, I'm going to go save my dad. And then his little brother's like, I want to save him too. And <laughs> and then the his friend Daisaku, <laughs> who keeps getting picked on this whole movie. <laughs> it, it must be that he's the fat, slow kid. <laughs> I mean, I was wondering... When your name is Daisuku, and I know that the prefix Dai in Japanese means large or giant, so I'm thinking, he must have been a big baby. <laughs> 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 and we have Daisuku in Dai Majin. You know? <laughs> but he's kind of like the Samwise of the group. <laughs> you know, <laughs> He's always looking out for the other ones. If they need something heavy carried, he carries it and... Things like that. Surukichi's kind of like Frodo. And then Sugi and Kinta are your Merry and Pippin. Yeah, if one of them actually dies. And yeah, so. let's talk about that a little bit. Because that's one of the things that's interesting about this. These boys are not Kennys. They are not Kennys at all. Gamera kids. Oh, yeah. Yeah. not Kenny. Yeah, they are not Kennys. They're as far from Kennys as you can get, I would say. They are not precocious little children. They feel like real kids who just decide mm-hmm. something needs to be done. But the thing is, is this, I wouldn't say this is a children's movie. There was some of the research I looked at for this movie was trying to say that Daie was perhaps aiming this at a younger audience because of the success of Gamera. And that really doesn't make any sense because at this point there were only two Gamera films and neither one of them are aimed directly at children. Not yet. So I don't think that holds up. So for me, and maybe this is a little bit strange, but this feels, it's not really a family film either. It's more like a film for adults that just happens to have children as the protagonist. Because if this was a children's movie, I'm not sure they would have had the guts to kill one of the main characters or have Daisuku's big brother, which is why he's on the journey. He wants to save his brother. He dies before they even get there. And that's why I think that Majin is more not really a god, but sort of a demon god, because he doesn't spare all the kids. Or at the very least, he doesn't rescue them. He intervenes on their behalf at other points, but not then. Yeah, he intervenes on their behalf when evil men were going after them, but not nature. Well, I actually think it was because they killed the uh, representation of the god 
Which was the hawk. Yeah, which we'll get into in a little bit because I thought that was really cool in this. I mean, because it is really cool and it's really different from anything they've done before with it again, which is also what I found really interesting. Also, at the beginning, they actually show him in action, which I don't think the other ones did. Like, No, you get to see glimpses of Daimajin in the first reel in this one. And that prologue does seem a little bit detached from the rest of the movie for a little bit. You guys were even asking me, I was like, why is this even here? And I said, well, I think it's meant to set the tone and the mood and to let you know that in this one, he is a wild mountain god and he can control the elements and manipulate weather and he can cause disasters and he doesn't really seem to care who that affects. But interestingly, he seems to be nothing but benevolent with these kids, which I find really fascinating. Maybe this is a reason why the kids are on the journey and not the adults. Because the adults grew up knowing the stories, knowing that anyone who went on that mountain ended up dying. Even the guy who went through it to get back ends up dying. The kids are young and dumb. (laughs) No, because they said, well, it's not safe. Well, they knew it wasn't safe. Maybe it's a little bit of we're young and invincible and we just don't care we're Mm. going to get through and save our families or at least die trying yeah it's better than dying here of lack of food or whatever yeah i did find it interesting that they don't develop the villains pretty much at all no they don't which i will admit wolf samurai cop (laughs) yeah we were i will say i gotta say the three samurai that are chasing after the boys in the forest and all across the mountain they're probably the coolest looking bad guys in the whole movie yeah. and we were because i think you even said like this guy looks like a wolf <laughs> you know, yeah, like, like, werewolf samurai <laughs> werewolf Sam- how is that not a movie i <laughs> might actually watch a movie called werewolf samurai that could be interesting at least once <laughs> i mean i just did a thing on twitter today that what you're supposed to use the first letter of each of your names and your full name and using the system that it has set up the monster movie title i got using all four because i have two middle names people came out as what was it uh i think it was attack of the flying mutant uh werewolves <laughs> see those things never work because i always like take the first, oh no the first... it was terror of the flying mutant werewolves That's <laughs> it's what it always like take the first three letters of your name that's my whole name. <laughs> I, 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 it doesn't even make sense. <laughs> but yeah, so those guys were interesting, but it was more because they were visually cool. There's not a whole lot to them. They're just meant to be chasing them. They to be chasing them, them to, so that it's not just the environment, the elements that the kids are dealing with on their journey. Yeah, if you want to use the Lord of the Rings analogy, they're the orcs, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> Wait, and now that I think about it, it actually kind of makes sense because they're trying to get to a place called Hell's Valley, which sounds like a great vacation spot. <laughs> and in Lord of the Rings, they're trying to get to Mordor. And it's just about as horrific. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely where you want to get beachfront property. <laughs> right next to the Sulphur Lakes. <laughs> it's in like, we were watching and I'm like, is this... Related to the biblical hell, there's a lake of burning sulfur. <laughs> and that's probably where the name came from. <laughs> well, at least the translated name. Yeah. So when you get to the end of the movie, because this follows the same basic structure as all the other movies, we don't really get any monster action until about the last 15, 20 minutes. 
And, and it, to be honest, it, Die Machine's Rampage, if you want to call it that, feels longer in this one. I don't know if it actually is longer. I didn't time it, but it feels longer. It, and, but it's a little less satisfying because we haven't spent as much time with the bad guys and seen just how terribly evil they are. I mean, we get, we get a few scenes of them whipping people and then one really evil scene where they throw Daisuku's brother into the sulfur pit after he tries to escape. Yeah, as I said, they didn't really develop the villains. They're sort of just generic samurai villains Mm -hmm. taking over the area. And I don't think there's any... Some of the major themes that were in the other ones where they just totally denied the religious value of the god. Like, they knew the god was on the mountain. And, yeah, I guess the leader says, I don't care, kill anyone that got, got through. Yeah. See, and that's the interesting thing. That theme is not really present in this. But that's because the movie is really exploring other things. Its focus is elsewhere. But we do get a tiny bit of it because those two samurai come back and they say, we chased that one guy, he got away, and we barely got out of the Majin's forest, on the Majin's mountain. And we're not going back because you can't tell east from west up there. And I said, what about north and south? Is that okay if I put it so those two guys believe the legends but yeah like you said we get kind of the impression that their leaders know about the majin and the curse but they really don't care but they never really say one way or the other yeah because that's not a focus on this now we do see people in this movie the kids do it for sure but we do get shots of adults who are showing reverence to Daimajine at some point or another and that's another thing that makes me think that it's not like a god in the traditional sense, but a sort of a demon god, is the adults decide to go after the kids because they're like, hey, the kids probably went to save their parents stupidly. They're going to die on that mountain. We should do something. They get there. They start praying to him and saying, hey, look, we're just trying to get the kids safe. And that's when the hawk dies on the other side of the mountain. And Daimajin first rampages against the people praying to him. And then... He goes and saves the kids. Let's talk about that a little bit because Machine actually gets a couple of new powers in this movie. The coolest one, I think, because again, this really starts to remind me of a traditional fantasy story, and that is the hawk and how the hawk is his avatar. So I asked my Japanese listener, Kyoe Toshi. She has mentioned this before to another podcast. I believe it was giant monster messages, actually. So I wanted to ask her, just as a quick reminder, what significance do hawks have in Japanese culture? And because I said I'm going to be doing an episode on this film. And she wrote, lots of things. To commoners, they're symbols of good luck. To the warrior class, they represent the virtues of strength, power, and noble aspirations. To everyone, they can be considered harbingers or messengers of the gods or even kami taking on their form. Falconry and hawking also were popular pastimes of the nobility and warrior classes, so they also exuded an air of status. Because I will admit, the hawking and falconry is not something I typically see in a Japanese film, which is why I thought it was interesting. Yeah, I don't think I've, even in animes, I don't really remember seeing... Too many hawks. Uh-uh. Yeah, and we talked about the villains not being quite as developed. I also, and maybe it's just me, but I'll ask you guys this. Do you feel like Daimajin had as much of a presence in this film when he wasn't on screen as he did in the previous ones? 
Not really, no. Yeah, because that's how I felt. Well, I mean, you also have to think the hawk of an extension of him. Yeah, that's the point where there is some presence, I think, but the hawk isn't showing up all the time, necessarily. Yeah, I will say that the focus is more on the rescue and less on, like, in the other two... This is almost not a monster movie. It's a rescue movie that happens to have a monster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd say that. Because the other ones, like, you know, they were asking for help. Or, you know, they it was the statue was being sought out to be destroyed. This one, it's just more of like a happenstance. It was totally by accident that they stumbled upon him. Yeah, it's, it's totally plot convenience that they happen to go through his mountain instead of it being like... We're out to destroy your religion to destroy your more your not morality morale. Oh really, Jimmy? Uh, my joke is accurate. Jet Jaguar really is powered by plot convenience. Someone figured out how to turn that into a power source. Oh goodness. Well, the scientist at Gamera would be. <sighs> of course. Isn't that how this whole island is like powered? Plot convenience? No. <laughs> no, but possibly irony. <laughs> Powered by irony. I'll ask the board. (laughs) But anyway, so we have the hawk. And the hawk is really cool. And then we have the moment. This was interesting. The hawk actually helps the boys because werewolf samurai and his two goons catch up with them on the mountain when they're the early stages of hypothermia despite the very fake-looking snow (laughs) start coming upon them. And uh, Surakichi just keeps yelling their names. So if you didn't know what these characters' names were, how could you forget? (laughs) So they're about to shoot them. And then the hawk swoops in and goes straight for the face on all three of them and saves them. But faces. Yeah. But then werewolf samurai apparently has dead eye aim because he took the hawk out. Jimmy, I don't need to hear any more stories about your marksmanship. Shut up. Anyway, he takes the hawk out. I like to point out using a laser gun, like a toy laser gun does not count as marksmanship. I'm just sorry. Yeah, prove it. Challenge accepted. Great. Oh, whatever. Anyway, so he takes the hawk out, and the hawk still has the stamina to apparently go straight for the face and, I don't know, maybe go for the eyes, too? I mean, there was a lot of very brightly colored blood on that poor guy's face when that was all said and done. I found it interesting. The special effects definitely got a downgrade from two. I can tell you that that's partially because this had a slightly lower budget than the other two. And it was also made quickly. (laughs) That's fine, because you've told me that it's the same writer, but obviously they sobered him up before writing the plot. (laughs) Because the second one was just a drunken mess. That's the only way to describe it. Yeah. And then, after the hawk gets taken out, and we have a shot, and I was glad they actually went back to this concept, that you see blood coming from the hawk. And then they cut back to the statue, and blood's coming from the statue again, which we haven't seen since the first movie. And then Daimajin comes to life. So there is a definite connection between the hawk and Daimajin. I would also like to point out that the blood on the statue looks more real than the blood on the people. Just saying. <laughs> that is kind of 
amusing now that I think about it. Yeah, their choice of bright red Kool-Aid was bad. <laughs> it was a little too bright for blood. Yes. You need to make some darker color in that food. Hot-blooded. <laughs> the music references are coming. <laughs> no, Jimmy, there will be no gangster rap played on this podcast. We're a family show. <sighs> anyway, then we are introduced to Daimajin's other new superpower in this movie, he can teleport. So apparently, if you pray hard enough to Daimajine, he will teleport to your location. But it was also interesting. Okay, it, this is where the plots get a little different, and that's why I kind of liked it. Because uh, other people were like, look, I will give up my life if you protect these people. This kid actively gave up his life. Yes. And... <laughs> was like, look, if you protect my friends and my family, take my life. And he didn't wait for the monster to come or anything. He literally just jumped off a cliff into a fake pile of snow. <laughs> but, you know, that's besides the point. <laughs> and the fact that... Are you talking about the fake snow that you keep trying to put over my head and cover me in? Yeah, that's what I thought. Jimmy... If it makes you feel any better, you can give her shampoo recommendations afterward. I know you take pride in that haircut of yours. Just be glad you don't have a COVID haircut right now. <laughs> or a blowout. <laughs> yes. Anyway, that is very, very true. <laughs> Those girls in the first two movies, they didn't do anything like that. He literally jumped off a cliff. And literally. And... Another thing is, is, you know, like, okay, yeah, he never teleported before. Well, one, the scene or the physical location was in a total different spot. And it makes sense because of that's where the bird died, too. And then the third one was because that's where he jumped in. It kind of makes sense that the statue came up in the same spot. Yes, and wasn't that cool? That was so cool. I'm like, is he going to have the kid or is he not going to have the kid? Is he gonna? Is this kid going to die or not? The, that's a question. I want. We probably should have talked about this when we talked about Kenta dying. Did that set a tone for you where you really thought all these kids may not make it? If Maybe even all of them may not make it? Well, I thought when he went to drown in the river that... My thought was, okay, when the Majin resurrects, he's going to save this kid. And you're going to find that he's, you know, alive downstream somewhere. Because what movie kills off one of the four main <laughs> characters that are children? So that it's like, okay, these people aren't safe. And then as the kids are dying of hypothermia, like, they're not able to be coherent. And then you have the heartless samurai come up. It's like, okay, yeah, we're going to choose our targets. Well, two of them are already dead, for all intents and purposes. You just have to get the one that's actually yelling at things. Yes. That goes to commit suicide. Yes. In a few minutes. Yeah. So did you guys, for a moment, actually think that Tsurukichi yeah. was dead? Actually, I didn't know if they were going to bring any of them back at one point. And I was like, Joe, I really thought that they were going to end up bringing back the kid. That went down the river. I really didn't think they were going to kill him off. And I was like, holy crap. They really killed him off. Yeah, this is a harsh movie, I think, at points. it In some ways, it's a bit lighter than the other two. But my gosh, it is harsh at points. I And I kind of wish that they had addressed this at the end of the movie. But we don't see Daisuku 
deal with the fact that his brother died before he got there. That was his whole motivation for going on this journey. And the all we can do is assume that after the events of the movie, they told him that his brother was dead. Yeah. There's no resolution to that. I assume that the adults, when they took him aside, started to talk to him about that. But yeah, there's no resolution emotionally for him. And maybe it's also signifying that you're too fat and too slow to save your brother. Yeah. I mean, that is a thing. Like I said, it is a harsh movie at points. And poor Daisuku, like I said, he gets picked on. One of the most interesting scenes is that point where the they're trying to cross the tree bridge. <laughs> and I made a joke about it. I was like, just be glad King Kong's not on the other side. <laughs> because you have to in those situations. Yeah. And they were saying, hey, Daisuku, you're the slowest one. You got to go first. And he's like, yeah, I'm not feeling it. And then <laughs> little Sugi just goes over and just taps on the thing and it falls down into the river. <laughs> and then one of those kids was smart enough to pack a small axe <laughs> and they chopped down another tree. And then I almost think Sugi just did this because she's like, oh, really, guys? You're scared to cross this tree? Watch this. And he just walks across it like it's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> the little brother who Surukichi kept saying, no, I don't want you to come. It's almost like he's saying, you're too small to come on this crazy journey where we're going to save dad. No, you don't get to come. <laughs> then he says, screw you. I'm going to come anyway. <laughs> and you really get the sense, like, the kid's death for Kenta really came as a surprise because earlier in the movie, there's this harsh rock climbing scene and they fall <laughs> from a height that would break the bones of most people. And they're just like, yeah, let's get up. Let's move on. <laughs> you like, know what they were like, having, Joe? Some deep hurting. <laughs> yeah, it was some deep hurting from rock climbing. Rock climbing. <laughs> and then uh, later on, we had snowstorm. <laughs> Thankfully, it didn't go on for 20 minutes. Yes. <laughs> no, but it was very magical how fast that snow fell and how deep it was. I'm just saying. Jimmy, how dare you say that listening to the episodes with Joy gives you deep hurting? Hey, look, he can say that all he wants, but at least, you know, I don't look in the mirror every day and say, wow, my head hurts. Ooh, sick burn. <laughs> He brings yeah. the worst out of me. I'm not really like this. I don't know, Joe. Can you vouch for that? Yeah. The only time that her bad side comes out is if we end up playing like Munchkin. <laughs> <laughs> that brings out the worst in everybody. What are you talking That's about? That's true. It does. It's not a very fun game unless you like being a jerk. <laughs> what's the tagline for that game again? Uh, was it uh, kill the monster, get the treasure, stab your buddy? Yeah. We kind of skipped over it, but I did want to mention at the beginning of the movie, there was something that I really found interesting. I mean, okay, so we know the special effects aren't great on these, but when they were showing the different types of natural disasters, which you don't realize until they go into the monologue about it from the narrator. and then it Yeah, it's almost sense. like a fairy tale at that point because it's yeah. this guy saying, this takes place at a time when people believed that mountain gods caused weather and stuff like right. that well the thing that i found really cool is so it showed we were talking about how we sh they showed little parts of it the of the statue or whatever in the beginning of the movie the part that i thought was really cool is when he stepped and it made it look like the water and the snow and the things that were like weighing down and crushing things were from him and not from nature 
but it was nature. It was just a very, very, very well done special effects scene. And I thought it was so cool because it wasn't like a high budget, but you could see the transition. It was like a five second thing, but you could see it and you were like, okay, you could feel like what they were thinking. Mm -hmm. Something that needs to be taken into consideration when you're watching a film like this, particularly a Japanese film. And it's a difference in mindset compared to particularly, I would say, an American audience, but I would say a Western audience in general. And that is Western special effects artists strive for some form of realism. They want it to look like what you're seeing on screen, whether it's practical or animated, at least looks real. Japanese filmmakers have a different idea. They are looking to create special effects that create a striking image. They're not striving for realism. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And there's cultural reasons for that, going back to things like Kabuki and no theater. And the you know, there's some other things. I'd have to reference the book where I got all of this. So that illustrates the difference in mindset. So Daimajin isn't necessarily meant to look like a real stone statue, but he's meant to look very striking. So there seems to be some time-lapse cuts. What do you mean? Well, the boys swing their axe at one stick, and then all of a sudden a raft is teleporting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, jump cut! <laughs> it's like, well, there's there's a staggering in it, all while the samurai are chasing them. So, Well, since we're on the subject of weird choices in this movie, you know what was my personal favorite? Apparently, Sugi is a moonlighting ninja. Sugi is definitely uh, from Konoha, for those of you anime <laughs> fans, because he was definitely hidden in the leaves. Yes, and either Werewolf Samurai and his two goons have the narrowest of tunnel vision, or that kid is magically invisible in the forest or something, because he was, what, maybe 10 feet away from them at most, and they ran right by him? Yeah, to the left, 10 feet. In the middle of the path, not even hidden in bright blue clothing, so. No, no, he's Legolas, you know, because he was able to, like, shoot with that yeah. really small bow. Yeah, he shot that, a couple well, of them in the leg earlier. Yeah, I mean, he's not the like. the capable of the four. Seriously. <laughs> and they really tried is. to keep him from coming. <laughs> he's like, okay, I will shoot you. He really is the Legolas. So we have the fat, slow kid that can't do anything, include save his brother. Then we have, like, the little brother that shouldn't have gone on the journey that turns out to be more awesome than the rest of them combined. (laughs) Hashtag irony. (laughs) And then, to boot... Uh, since we're talking about sticks right now, <laughs> the part later when Daimajin's attacking the the, uh, the fortress, because the people who get enslaved in this were loggers, so I guess they had a supply of logs there, and they cut ropes to make the logs try, uh, fall down to at, you know, at least slow down Daimajin, and he just stands there in front of them all as if to say, really, guys? He picks up two of them throws them, and then he starts picking up other ones and throwing them back at the bad guys. And I have written down here in my notes, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? (laughs) 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 And somewhere Reverend Mufune is nodding his head in agreement. Daimajin was just trying to play fetch with him. 
<laughs> I'm subtly picturing a little Dimagine dog. <laughs> no, no. He was no, trying like, to, like, the bad guys were, he's like, I'm not the dog, you're the dog. Gonna, <laughs> you want to play fetch? Play fetch. <laughs> now I just see, I have a picture of like, you know, one of the monsters from the movies, like wagging his tail, trying to wait for a stick. Like, throw the stick, throw the stick. <laughs> okay. Somewhere, Japanese Clifford is still waiting for that long. Oh, time. don't get me started on that. There are still fans <laughs> in the kaiju community who want to argue over whether or not Clifford the Big Red Dog is a kaiju. Well, you know what? He's not on the island. He's not on any of the islands. He's not on the beta site or the gamma site. So. That little blonde girl can keep it. <laughs> but is that because the board decided or because you decided? Because, you know. I'm just a film curator. I have little to no say in what kaiju are kept here. <laughs> but since we're talking a bit about Dime Machine's Rampage, this has to be brought up because, Joe, you had to wait three movies. For the sword to come out. And yes. Next to nothing. <laughs> oh, come on. Well, the sword does destroy ground. Yeah, it splits the earth. Okay, okay, so this is my first song reference, okay? It's not your first, but go for it. Well, okay, for the podcast, this specific <laughs> podcast, for this movie, okay? No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> music reference. Look. Unless they're going to cut it. <laughs> Fine. With that samurai sword. <laughs> Okay, Jimmy, he wants to remind you, (laughs) Joe, that you need to go back and listen to that first episode because it's not a samurai song. (laughs) But he's he's snickering in there too. He thinks this is pretty funny. Okay, as I was trying to. But apparently. I'm sorry, it's a straight sword. Small straight sword. (laughs) From a Chinese descent. Okay, what was that, Jimmy? Oh, apparently he totally approves of anything that will cut joy out of the episode. Dude, why do you hate me so much? <laughs> hey, Dude, don't answer that question. Dude, you're going to get cut later. Just so you know. <laughs> um, At okay. this rate. So as I was saying, my song, I guess apparently the second song of the episode, y'all can debate this later, <laughs> depending on what gets cut or not anyways, was old time rock and roll. Because, you know, it was rocks and roll. Yeah. But I'm just saying, that was amazing. He pulls out the sword. He raises it up. You think he's yeah. going to slash something, and he just goes, boom. He tosses like he it, and tosses it lands it. in the ground. He's like, it was It was like probably one of the coolest episodes, because it's like not just, he's not just like big and awesome. His sword is like awesome. Yeah. Now, <laughs> he does magically get it back, because I don't remember picking it back up, but he does find our villain. And he, <laughs> yeah. But before that, he's like, "Let's just destroy everything." As I'm walking, and you can't see that I'm swinging my hands because that's what he does. <laughs> I will also punch open the gate that has the Rebel Alliance insignia on it again. <laughs> punch through the gate, and then I'm going to pick it up, and I'm clearly holding this up with wires, but it's totally me. And <laughs> he and throws it. Really? And, and then the other part I thought was really funny. I'm sorry, I totally interrupted you. No, go for it. Go for okay, it. Okay, okay. So then the other part I like is like he's like reaching in the cave thing and the guy's like oh my gosh he's gonna get me he's gonna get me you know freaking out and what does that guy do he runs back out the door and 
door that he came in. It's like, how stupid are you? <laughs> I mean, what do you think's gonna happen? <laughs> yeah, but Dime Machine also is apparently not in a hurry because he just kind of stands there like, hi. <laughs> and isn't that the point where we get the stare where he's like looking off and he looks straight at the camera and you're like, holy crap. Yeah, they have to do that shot. That's apparently That's like, a, a, a mandatory in these movies. But it's so freaky because you're like, Ugh. <laughs> I mean, I know I, it's not like real, but still, you're like. I, that's a testament to not only this costume, but that actor's performance. Yeah, he's got the eyes. <laughs> he really does. Yeah, I don't know if I showed you pictures. I can't remember you the did. guy's name. I think it's Hashimoto, I think is his last name. But you can see the Daimajin in the face. Oh, yes. When you see a picture of him, especially those eyes. This is one case where the suit doesn't take away from the actor's features. No. No, and yeah, it's it's absolutely fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. But yes, and then... We have our mandatory wipe shot of, you know... Yes! And it still and looks cool. Every one of, the, of these movies, that looks so cool. Yeah, wipe my hands across my face, and it goes from stone to flesh. And then once I'm done, it goes back from flesh to stone. Yes, but he does use the sword again, and then he pins our villain... Well, you think he's pinning him like he did the first time with the giant nail, yeah. you know? But no, he takes the sword and he stabs the guy in the heart. That's your cue. Okay, so this is the one I came up with. <laughs> <laughs> As... uh, kaiju lovers, I am so sorry this isn't a video podcast. <laughs> so many face palms. In fact, Jimmy is face palming right now, too. Well, that's just because for some reason he doesn't like me. Okay, so this is the song I got. And if you guys have any other better suggestions, I really want to hear it because it's the only one I could come up with. All right, here we go. Stab through the heart, you're too late. You gave Samurai a bad name. <laughs> and then the, if that wasn't good enough, because that wasn't ironic enough, he stabs him, keeps the sword, lets go of the guy, and he falls into a sulfur pit. <laughs> and then... <laughs> My my response to that one was, splish, splash, I was taking a bath all on a Saturday night. <laughs> to which my husband is still Facebook. And I'd like to point out, he's like, we have to find something better. And he couldn't think of anything. <laughs> this is your trademark. I've You realize the precedent you have set if you guys ever come back. My listeners are going to be like, oh, the Metters are coming back. We need to hear from the dogs. We need to get song <laughs> references. <laughs> and Kermit. <laughs> Both I and me are uh, ashamed of the song references for this episode. <laughs> Again, I gave you the option of having something better and you had nothing. Yeah, I couldn't think of anything that involved a hot tub. <laughs> the only other one I could think of was um hunk of burning love. <laughs> oh, apparently that got the the dogs excited there. Teddy, it's okay, buddy. I know, I know. There's so many monsters that walk by the window. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, so Joe, you did have one comment during the movie. During the movie, that it was the. Cha-ching moment. <laughs> he was tapping into his inner MST3K, his inner Joel Hodgson, 
at that really point. Was. And I and it was still one of my favorite like I mean sometimes we, we do this like when we're watching it we'll come up with silly things or whatever. But I still of all three movies, I still think this is the best one liner. Those samurai can't hit the broadside of a mountain god. Nope. Yeah, because the we have archers that start shooting at him and it looks like the arrows are exploding six feet away from him. <laughs> I mean, I expect it to hit him and go clink or tink or something. Have you ever seen, like, those NFL kickers that try to go, like, way past their range and they end up hooking it left or right by, like, 10 feet, 10 yards? (laughs) All the arrows hooked around. It was like a magnet that just parted the scene. I am Die Machine, master of magnet. (laughs) No, no, okay. Welcome to die. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I want that. I want that meme. I want that meme. Just a picture of, of Die Machine's face. And it says, welcome to die. <laughs> okay, so you know how the other two movies, like it was the, the sledgehammer or whatever, like totally missing it by like a mile long. <laughs> yeah. This episode, it's the arrows. <laughs> Actually, that guy's not even working. <laughs> He's just swinging. Yeah. He's just pulling the string back a little bit. Just like, boing, boing. Where's your arrow? Boing. That guy's not even aiming. <laughs> he was playing Galica. <laughs> he thought we wouldn't notice. But, <laughs> but no, and here's something that's also kind of funny, a behind-the-scenes thing. I read in one of John LeMay's books. I don't know if this is true or not. It didn't sound like John was entirely sure of this himself. But the end of the movie, when Die Machine turns back to stone and then he uh, dissipates into snow, supposedly that prop was made of soft serve ice cream. I can see that. <laughs> Wait, what prop? The When he turns into snow at the end, that was supposedly made of soft serve ice cream. I can, yeah. <laughs> there, it's It's there. <laughs> I mean, some of these special effects, although they're going for striking images, the realism looks as real as Birdemic. <laughs> oh, that's harsh. That's harsh. <laughs> See, even Jimmy thinks you're being harsh. Okay, that hawk going after the samurais, I was like straight out of Birdemic. <laughs> no, I think that's why Birdemic got the idea. That's where they failed at the idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's something else for you. Supposedly, Gamera director Noriaki Uasa, who did all but one of the old Gamera movies, he was supposedly approached to make a Daimajin TV series shortly after this movie was released. It never happened. That's not surprising. I mean, it's they're very interesting, and I'm really glad I watched them, even though I'm not usually into Kami, as Nate well knows. <laughs> but I don't know how they would make it into a TV show, because literally every single episode, unless it was like the journey to having him come and save them, or it would be a longer movie. Long- you couldn't do the same themes as the movie. No. And it would probably just end up being the same thing every episode. Bad people, Daimajin, kill. <laughs> right, exactly. That's what I was trying to say, and words are not working. Yeah. Jimmy, don't say it. <laughs> and he had something else in mind. Apparently, he wants to know if you met Kami or Kaiju earlier. He said you weren't into Kami. You weren't I... into God. Oh, jeez. 
Look, I told you, I'm not into kaiju, kami, whatever you want to call it. it I think she meant kaiju. I yeah. mean kaiju. I'm yeah. sorry, guys. Yeah. Please don't stone me. Oh, well, we don't stone people around here. What are you talking about? Now, you might have to be stoned to watch Godzilla versus Hedera, but... <laughs> you need this much pure cocaine to enjoy this movie. <laughs> yes. But funny thing, a TV show didn't happen then, but it did in 2010. I haven't seen it, but I showed you guys pictures of that. No. Die Machine Canon, or Canon. I don't know how you would pronounce it 100%. I'm just saying no. Like, I saw the pictures, and I'm like, yeah. uh, no. Just, yeah. just no. Apparently, we, we uh, Dime Machine's been taking some serious roids. Yeah, we read over the, some of the plot, and <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, no. it apparently involves a wannabe J-pop star who has to learn how to sing, and there's an army of demons that Dime Machine has to fight, and it, yeah. It's like Transformers slash Power Rangers... Meets Japanese weird karaoke. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One more fun little fact related to this. Apparently, there was almost a fourth movie in the early 90s, and it was going to be a co production between Daie and Golden Harvest, which is a Hong Kong based studio known for martial arts movies. Huh. Like the Bruce Lee films. <laughs> Other than Enter the Dragon, that was Warner Brothers. I think, honestly, that could have been kind of interesting. That could have been, which reminds me also, this is the only movie that did not have really any sword fighting at all. I know, we were looking for our favorite credit because the credits are at the end of the movie and not at the beginning, which is a little strange. And we're like, where's our favorite credit? And yeah, there was no fight scene or sword <laughs> sword, sword fight credits in this one, unfortunately. <laughs> Because no one actually used their swords correctly. Not even Daimogene. <laughs> well, he the stabbed him through the heart. <laughs> if, if you see how big that sword is? He doesn't. It's not hard for him to miss. <laughs> he stabbed him through the heart and the lungs and several other vital organs. <laughs> it was more like the heart through the top of the stomach. <laughs> <laughs> really? I don't know how to use my sword properly. Have you ever seen me use a sword? Oh, you don't think you can imagine it? Okay. Okay. All right, you two. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to separate you two right now. I'm not starting it. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm he's sorry. He's your intern. Uh, he's not my intern. He's my producer. Whatever. <laughs> he's like an intern. He's about as intelligent as one. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah. Calm down, Jimmy. Calm the frick down, okay? Your engineering degrees from NASA from the early 90s don't count. <laughs> uh, That's worse. Thanks for confirming you're even more out of date. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're going to pick a fight with both of them now? Okay, we're moving on. We're moving on. Let's go on to the Toku topic now. All right, let's move on to our wait, third. Wait, 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 we forgot wait. something very important. What's that? The scenery. Oh, yes. How could we forget about the scenery in this movie? I, I want to know where it is because I want to go there. I mean, the mountains were pretty. Like, it was just absolutely gorgeous. It was filmed live in New Zealand. Uh, the Japanese island of New Zealand, I think yeah. is how you put it. The, the Japanese island of New Zealand. Yes. Yes, yes because it was so pretty. 
But yes, the scenery was great. Probably the best looking scenery of out of all three movies, I have to say. I agree. I mean, some of them, you know, they're like, okay, yeah, that's cool. But I mean, really, honestly, it, I just want to, I'm like, talk about like the hills being alive with the sound <laughs> of music. <laughs> <laughs> you hijacked my show just for that joke, didn't you? Pretty much. <laughs> of course you did. Uh, and Joe's trying to stab me with his <laughs> not sharp pencil. <laughs> uh, taking Munchkin a little literally there, Joe. Except in this case, it's stab your wife. The, the pun was so bad, I... I... <laughs> couldn't let her <laughs> you're just like widowhood is worth it <laughs> <laughs> divorce is not an option so it's still death to <laughs> was it so punny you melted into a puddle <laughs> <laughs> hey i don't need live seppuku on this podcast i'm just saying <laughs> Well, how would that work? I mean, it's all audio, so all you hear is. <laughs> We're doing our own ADR. Can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is what happens when you've been married for a while. Yes. <laughs> so, as I was trying to say before, we had to talk about the Japanese island of New Zealand. <laughs> We're going on to the Toku topic, and since we've already talked about the era in which these movies take place, Christianity coming, and about Shintoism in the previous episodes, it seemed only natural and appropriate that this time we would talk about Kami, which we talked in brief and in passing in the previous episode, but I decided, you know what, I'm going to dive headlong into this, look into what exactly Kami are, considering that a frequent talking point that we've had is discussing the films, or rather, the <laughs> the subtitler's choice of translating Kami as God Little G and Kami-sama as God Big G, which did continue in this, although Daimajin was more frequently just called Majin, which I thought was interesting. So, according to one of the sources I looked at, our confusion is not new. There has been many attempts over the centuries to define the term Kami. There was a 14th century author named Inbei no Masamichi who argued that the Japanese character for kami can be pronounced the same as the one meaning above. So the word refers to one who is from above. Here's a little quotation from my source. Since the kami always reside in the plane of high heaven or takamanohara, they are said to be above and thus those above are said to be kami. There you go. And this was pervasive throughout the Edo period and into, interestingly, into the Meiji era. So it, was, it lasted for a while. However, there was an Edo period scholar named Motori Norinaga who said this was wrong. And he offered a different definition that I'm going to read for you guys. And this has become the definition for Kami ever since. He wrote, in general, Kami refers to... First, to the manifold kami of heaven and earth we see in the ancient classics and to the spirits, mitama, in shrines consecrated to the same. And it further refers to all other awe-inspiring things, which was something we talked about in mm -hmm. your previous trip here. People, of course, but also birds, beasts, grass, and trees, even the ocean and mountains, which possess superlative power not normally found in this world. 
Superlative here means not only superlative in nobility, goodness, or virility. Virility. Okay. Since things which are evil and weird as well, if they inspire unusual awe, are also called kami. And this comes from a source called the Koji Kaiden. And we definitely see this, the prologue to this movie, like we were talking about, with all of the thunderstorm and the snowstorm and the villages being destroyed. And they're attributing it to Daimajin and how he has such control over, over those things. From the same source that I was looking at, they said, while invisible, talking about Kami, he said, while invisible, it may dwell within hierophanies or manifestations, which are called Yoshishiro, such as trees, rocks, fire, and other natural objects, and in ritual objects such as mirrors and gohei. Likewise, Kami nature is expressed through natural phenomena such as wind and thunder. Does that sound like this movie? <laughs> and possess human beings and cause them to utter oracles, which it calls Takusen. And having seen a lot of other Japanese media, I think we've seen things like that. I'm sure, Joe, if you had a second, you could probably think of an anime or two where something like this happens. I'm actually thinking of a Godzilla film where something like this supposedly happened. It's actually one of the ones that was on MST3K, Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, where the opening scene is the young characters are talking with an old woman who's supposedly a seer, and she can contact people in the realm of the dead and things like that. So I dug a little bit deeper, and I found out that kami are supposed to be manifestations of something called musubi. You guys ever heard of musubi? No. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Musubi is the interconnecting energy of the universe. Huh. Sounds like something with lightsabers and magic something. Yeah, there's definitely where George Lucas got the idea for Star Wars. Yeah. So, kami are considered exemplary of what humanity should strive towards. So, they're manifestation of Musubi and, I guess, are aspirational figures. Oh, well, that's scary. <laughs> kami are believed to be hidden from the world, and they inhabit a complementary existence that mirrors our own. And this existence is called Shinkai, or World of the Kami. Oh. Interesting. Could also be translated World of Really? Shin is death. Oh, that is true. Shinigami. So. Yes, that is true. That Japanese word is very dynamic, let yeah. me tell you. I remember seeing a lot of that when Shin Godzilla came out and everyone was trying to figure out what is the title actually supposed to mean? And the more you dig into what the word Shin is, the more complicated it gets. Yeah. Especially in the context of the movie. And just like we had mentioned before, Kami can't be characterized in moral terms. They are not solely good or evil. Yeah, the first and third movie uh, sort of show that, where it, the Kami didn't care who he was killing. The second one, a little bit less so, because the second one was just written while he was drunk, apparently. <laughs> well, I think part of that is the same reason why in the second one and the third one, he really only went after the people that were in his way or were actively attacking him. And the third one, I mean, which we didn't really get into, but they were all literally on the other side of the pit or whatever. So literally they were like cowering and hiding the whole time because they were like, 
I'm not going to fight this thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were talking about Lord of the Rings parallels. Dime Machine literally storms a fortress literally. in this. It was, yeah. I mean, if you want to call it the Siege of Helm's Deep, you can. I mean, it's not entirely fair. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. They were hunkering down and he still came after them. So, Kamir's said to possess both good and evil aspects, and this is expressed in their gentle spirit, which is called Nigimitama, or their rough spirit. Does this sound familiar? Which is called an Aramidatama. You know, so since we were hearing Daimujin called a wild mountain god, I think that's definitely in keeping with this. To so, Joe's point of is there ever a mountain god that's not wild? <laughs> Where are the tame mountain gods? Yes. We should enlist all the tame mountain gods to help us. We've tamed them down already. <laughs> Apparently. Which actually is a good transition into the next bullet point that I had, which is there were actually no representations of Kami with human features, which are called Shinzo. And these were wooden images until the arrival of Buddhism. Huh. However, it was believed that Kami did possess human-like responses to things and that they should be approached in a similar way as you would to humans. For example, if a kami is worshipped inadequately or not at all, they can, guess what, extend a curse and exhibit violent destructive behavior. Mm. Well, again, <laughs> does this sound familiar? And then by offering it proper worship, some kami can be placated and transformed into a protective tutelary. That's what... My source says here, a protective tutelary that profits human beings. <laughs> Again, <laughs> is that not what we've been seeing in all of these movies? Except the last one. They don't really... The kids offer proper worship and they protect the kids. And prayer. So something else that I found while I was looking into all of this is not only is there kami, but there's also a concept called tamashi. Have you guys ever heard tamashi? No. Interestingly, when I watched an episode of Ultraman Z on YouTube, because they include the commercials, since this is simulcast on YouTube to the whole world, they leave in the commercials. And one was for a company. I don't remember what it does. One of you kaiju lovers can correct me or Jimmy can figure it out for his notes. There is actually a company called Tamashi in Japan. The word Tamashi is frequently rendered as spirit, and it refers to, again, we're getting into Star Wars territory here, a free-floating spiritual force. Wow, he took this straight out of the playbook for Star Wars. Yes, he did. <laughs> and let me tell you, if you if you uh, dive a little bit into some of George Lucas's other ideas for Star Wars, it gets even zanier about these things. No midichlorians, though. Not at that point. <laughs> So, a spiritual entity from outside, which may alternately possess and leave an object. So, for example, if you have an abundant rice harvest, that could be because of a rice spirit or an inadama, because it had joined with the actual rice grain. Tamashi are considered impersonal entities, though, but they usually attach themselves to objects or to human beings. And when a tamashi does this, it can actually be apprehended by a kami. You see this, according to my sources, in some older Japanese myths because there is the great landmaster kami, which is Okuninushi no kami, but it's depicted with human attributes, so at times it's referred to as Okunitama, or a great land spirit. And also, apparently, there are word spirits as well. Okay. They're called Kotodama, 
And this idea came about because it was believed that an unattached spirit that believes itself to have physical attributes would become this. That's weird. So, in other words, when one expresses a wish in the proper words, the spirit power of the word causes those wishes to be fulfilled. Oh, okay. Power of the word. Got it. Yeah, that's sort of in line with Christian thinking, sort of, maybe, not really. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, And now suddenly, Reverend Mifune is no longer nodding his head and smiling. He's probably uh, asking for, uh, you know, a lake of sulfur for me at this point. (laughs) For my heresy! Interestingly, this spiritual power, Kotodama, can be invoked through the action of Kotuage, or word-raising. So, there are a couple different categories of kami. Remember, I mentioned in the previous episode that Shinto teaches that there's 8 million kami, which is just their way of saying that there are many. Right. So, it says there are two categories. You have nature kami and culture kami. Oh, my goodness. And both of them have a close relationship with human life. Nature kami essentially recognize the supernatural features of powers of natural objects and phenomena. So, lightning, thunder, wind. Things like that. This group can also be divided into celestial and terrestrial kami. So celestial kami can be heavenly bodies or meteorological phenomenon. And terrestrial kami can be geological forms, so a mountain. And physical processes like that of plants and animals. Culture kami, according to this, can be broadly defined into three categories. So now we're getting into more subcategories. You have community kami, which are worshipped in particular social groups. Functional kami, which are the specific aspects or occupations of human life. And human kami, remember how I mentioned that apparently it's possible for humans, if they're awe-inspiring enough to become kami, such as the emperor of Japan. So they can be treated as kami as well. Remember how we've talked about the Japanese pantheon of gods and how they are actually kami? They are specifically a type of kami called a saijin. And these are the kami that are worshipped at Shinto shrines. So Amaterasu... Suzanu, they're all Saijin. And the ancestors in a family can be worshipped as Kami. Not because they have godly powers, but because of their exemplary qualities or virtues. And people who do this in Japan, they have, you've probably seen this, they have a little house shrine for this, and that is called a Kamidana. The thing is, even with all these categorizations, a single Kami could fall under several of them. For example, there was a folklorist named Yanagita Kunio who theorized that when someone dies, their spirit becomes an ancestral kami that ascends into the mountains where it becomes a kami of nature called a mountain kami or a yama no kami. Is this sounding familiar? And then in the spring, that kami will descend to the village and to become a rice paddy kami or a Tano Kami, and it watches over the production efforts of its descendants. And then following the autumn harvest, that Kami returns to the mountain and assumes the role of the mountain Kami. And this actually reminded me a little bit of a 90s, I think I may have mentioned this in one of your previous episodes, a 90s Godzilla comic published by Dark Horse, where Godzilla fights a pastiche of Daimajin, but instead of it being a demon or a demon god, it was actually the spirit of a heroic monk that was inside of the statue. And this statue was a proper samurai, which is not what Daimajin is. And the name of this creature was Gakido Jin. Also, there was at one point a Godzilla movie in the 70s where they were going to have Godzilla fight a Daimajin-like monster, and it never came to be. 
That was Godzilla versus Gigan, for those of you who were wondering. Now, interestingly, remember when we talked about how there was a point where Shinto and Buddhism converged in Japan? One of the things that came about because of that, and I think we may have talked about it a little bit, is that's when it was believed that people could become kami when they died. Not only kami, but they could also become Buddhas. And this is called Hotoke. Devotees of the Pure Land School of Buddhism wish to escape the cycle of life and death and be reborn in Amida Buddha's Pure Land, which, according to this, is supposed to be a lot like the Western Paradise. Okay. So I guess it's their little version of heaven? No, they're obviously referring to America. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) I will admit, there are times I miss the Western Paradise. (laughs) So this convergence and this concept led to several different beliefs, and I have them listed here. According to the author Daisaburo, when people die for a time, their spirits remain to wander near their place of death. After they cross Sanzunokawa, or the River of Three Crossings, to the next world, they become Buddhas, or Kami. If they have strong attachments to this world or hold grudges, they cannot attain Buddhahood and instead become ghosts, or Yorei, which Bex from Udim Dotaku and I talked about in episode 20. People who have committed wicked deeds fall into hell as punishment and are tormented by King Enma and his demons. Although, and you might be able to vouch for me with this, Joe, the Japanese concept of hell is a little bit different than how Westerners view hell. Yeah, I don't quite get it, but it's definitely not the uh, traditional Christian hell. Most definitely. Might be a subject to talk about more in depth in a future episode. And then he says, the dead return to their homes at the time of the Summer Bond Festival, which I think I've talked about before. And ancestors are given posthumous names, which are inscribed on mortuary tablets placed on family altars. Incense sticks are burned in front of these altars. Now, I know about that because of the emperors. The emperors are given posthumous names while they are still on the throne. So the emperor during World War II and all that whole period, that was Akihito, if I remember correctly. But his posthumous name was Showa. So even when he was still alive, his time frame was called the Showa era, which is where we get the name of the classic Godzilla films. That's called the Showa series. Mm -hmm. So for Shintoists, they believe that Japan is a Kami no Kuni or country of Kami. Now, according to this article I looked at, it can be translated as God's country. God Big G, from what I gathered. Wow. And this has been misunderstood as a ultra-nationalist expression. But he says that's not really what it means. But I see where he's coming from. So I did find some famous kami that you guys might be familiar with. How about Raijin and Fujin? Sounds familiar. Yeah, lightning god and wind god. Yeah, you might know Raijin by his Raiden. other name, Raiden. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so if you ever played Mortal Kombat, they have Raiden. And a lesser known character from King of Fighters, who is a wrestler with a lightning motif, is Raiden. Although I've heard that pronounced Raiden, probably so they don't get him confused with the Mortal Kombat character. <laughs> and there's also a character named Fujin in the Mortal Kombat games. And he's a wind god. 
Actually, Raiden's probably the correct Japanese pronunciation. Probably. And they are feared in Japan because of typhoons. Here's a funny story. Because Raijin, like you said, is the lightning god. And then Fujin is the wind god. Japanese parents, this is freaky. Japanese parents tell their kids to hide their belly buttons during storms so Raijin doesn't eat them. Well, that's terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're... So, if you're in Japan, don't wear a short tank top during a no storm. No drifts tops for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but interestingly, despite the fact that they are... Is deadly. <laughs> but interestingly, despite the fact that they are fearsome and feared, they appear at the gates of shrines for protection. Have you ever heard of Inari? Or Inari? Maybe that's how you pronounce it. She is the goddess of rice, tea, fertility, sake, and worldly success. Well, that's a whole lot of responsibility. Yeah. Or as my article put it, everything that is important in Japan. (laughs) 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 And foxes are her messengers. So foxes are respected in Japan. Now we know what foxes say. Yes, it is the word of Anari, apparently. (laughs) So shrines, shrines actually, (laughs) shrines have smaller shrines dedicated to and small statues of foxes. I think there's a few over in the, uh, over at the shrine here on the island. And then this one is definitely relevant to our discussion of Daimajin. There is a Kami named Canon. Come on. Like the title of that Daimajin TV show I showed you the picture of. Because remember, the heroine's name in that was... How did you say it, Joe? Kanon? Yeah, Conan. Conan. Kanon. Okay. Uh, The, like, double consonant, you're supposed to hold it a little bit. Okay. She is the Japanese Buddhist goddess of mercy. Huh. She is a bodhisattva, which I think we had talked about before on a previous episode, which is someone who has delayed Buddhahood to help others achieve enlightenment. And again, this goes back to another thing we had talked about in a previous episode. Japanese Christians in the 17th century, after there were laws passed against Christianity, they used her because she looked like the Virgin Mary. Remember I said that they made statues of a Buddhist goddess and passed it off as the Virgin Mary? Because <laughs> they look very similar. And then, I'm sure you've probably heard this one, a Tengu? Yes. Have you heard of Tengus, Joy? Yes. Okay. They're usually monsters or ghosts. But these bird creatures take human form and they have giant noses. <laughs> giant beaks, yes. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Nose and beak, yep. Interestingly, they were once considered enemies of Buddhism. Huh. Because they would corrupt followers and monks. But now they're viewed as guardians of sacred forests and mountains. Interesting. Again, does this sound familiar? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then... Because I, I wanted to bring up this example because we talked about humans who could achieve kamihood. Is that a word? Sure. I'm, make, I'm making crap up. So, Taira no Masakado. Does that name sound familiar? Say it again. Taira no Masakado. Not particularly. He was a samurai who died in battle in 940 after defying the Japanese royal court and taking over much of the country. Huh. He was enshrined at the Kanda Shrine. He was popular because of his defiance, and he has to be constantly appeased because he is a crazy, powerful kami. He was blamed for fires and floods during the Edo period. Interesting how apparently one of the most powerful kami used to be human. Really? Yeah. 
And then there was this last one that I think is very fitting, and I would not be surprised if he was one of the direct inspirations for this movie, Bishamon. Ever heard of Bishamon? No. Did you ever play Darkstalkers? Nope. Oh, that explains it. There's a character named Bishamon in Darkstalkers. Or Bishamontan. It's the Japanese name for the Hindu god, and I'm probably really going to butcher this one, but I'll try it. Vesravana? He is an armor-clad god of war and warriors who punishes evildoers. Wow. He holds a spear and a pagoda, and the pagoda symbolizes a divine treasure trove he guards, and he gives away stuff from the treasure trove to people. And he is one of the seven lucky gods in Japan. Well, that's all the notes I have on Kami. You guys have anything to add to this? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so sweet to the point. Okay, so I will say this. I came into this not knowing what to expect because, again, this isn't my normal genre, even though I love anime and I love most things like in Japanese culture. This is just one of those things I've never really gotten into or had a desire to really get into. So it's kind of been an interesting perspective for me because I it is a, something I haven't ever done before, like gotten really into these. I will definitely Burn say... the outsider. <laughs> You're about hey, hey, wife. this is a non gatekeeping podcast, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I mean, to... you had nothing to say, remember? <laughs> he found it. <laughs> he found your voice. He found the words. Someday you will find it. Just <laughs> to express it. Uh, and just to make all of the kaiju fans in the audience happy his words were stuck in his throat we're moving on now (laughs) (laughs) um anyways what i was trying to say is i'm really you know as i've been interrupted by my husband better than jimmy (laughs) better than jimmy anyway so i'm really glad that i did watch these and learned a little bit about their culture and history and all that fun stuff and yeah, I mean, it was definitely something that was worth watching, even if it's not your true genre. It's one of those ones where it's like, okay, I can take some stuff from this. Not just like, I'm not talking about like life altering, changing stuff. <laughs> I'm just talking about stuff that you just don't know. Yeah, there's definitely things to talk about in these. And I think over the course of the last couple of months, showing you these films and discussing them, I think we've mined a lot out of them. Just like I told you, they are a little bit inaccessible, I think, for non-Japanese audiences. And I really do hope that you guys were kind of my guinea pigs for this, that doing the research that I did and finding out these cultural elements helped make the movies more accessible for you and gave you a greater appreciation because that is what this podcast is about. I agree. I think that it really made a difference. I mean, knowing and understanding like some of the symbolism. It's like when you're learning about history, you don't want to just learn about the history. You want to learn about the culture of that time period. It's the same thing with movies and those types of stories. You want to not just like watch it. You want to kind of understand it a little bit more. And the more you understand it, the more things click and the more fun it is to watch because then you're like, oh, that makes sense. Or, oh, I see that. So it was definitely well worth the time and lack of sleep. (laughs) um, You are speaking for Joe right now. (laughs) I am. Yeah. Lack of sleep has been on all three of these movies. Not this one so much. You've been been having a good time this weekend here on the island. Yeah. Yeah, we've had our hands full. That's for sure. But yeah, we're ready to get rid of the board of directors. Oh, really? I thought they were treating you pretty nice. Yeah, but they just don't give us time to think. (laughs) That is true. 
they don't give me time to think either. You know how many last minute changes they throw at me before I do a broadcast? My goodness. Well, I will say that you guys have been rocking the pink jumpsuits pretty well. I try. (laughs) (laughs) I think Jimmy's taken a little more liking to it than I have. Pink is the new black. Apparently. Around here we say pink is the new orange because we all used to wear orange. Well, I'm not sure if you would rather be like a pink strawberry or an orange pumpkin. I mean, you You forget. I like orange. Oh, you're one of those weird people. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We shared a brain for a second. (laughs) All right. It's time to start closing up shop around here. It was great having you guys around. But now it is time for the all-important Patreon shout-outs. Woot! Go show! Travis Alexander, Michael Hamilton, Eli Harris, Chris Cook, Danny Damana, Bex from Redeemed Otaku. All right. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> Joe needed a little uh, pick me up there. <laughs> As I said, if this was a uh, Pokemon game, we would say Joe is gathering energy for his next attack. <laughs> All right. So speaking of next episodes, actually, one of my patrons will be joining me for the next episode. Travis Alexander, co-host of the Kaiju Weekly podcast and also one of the founding members of the apparently upcoming Kaiju Rama magazine. That's his newest project right now. (laughs) You might be hearing more about that as we go. He's already invited me to write an article for it. He'll be joining me to talk about Frankenstein Conquers the World. How appropriate that that will be the episode right before Halloween. Although I like to call the movie Frankie v. Barry (laughs) because Frankenstein fights a monster named Baragon in it. And Travis is a huge fan of Baragon. (laughs) Definitely makes me think of the Frankenberry cereal. There you go. Well, I'll make sure to make note of that and bring it up in that episode. There you go. Yeah, but... The one with the Frankenberry. (laughs) And then next month for what unfortunately will amount to being the final major discussion episode of the season because Godzilla vs. Kong keeps getting delayed. What the? Jimmy, what did I tell you about propagating this crazy idea that there's going to be a Godzilla vs. Kong premiere on the island in November, okay? I can't believe you snuck this into the episode. You and I are going to have words. Hey, don't give me any lip there, buddy. It will be The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, where I will be joined by our wonderful mutual friend, Nick Hayden. It was weird. We haven't heard the dogs or heard from Jimmy in a while. That's a little strange. Yeah, I'm more worried about the dogs. Where'd they go? Hey, hold it, hold it, hold it. Jimmy's back in the sound booth. Can't believe I didn't notice he was gone. Hey, Jimmy, what's going on with the dogs? Are you freaking kidding me? Are you serious? You had them impounded? Why? They violated the mask mandate? (sighs) They're dogs, you absolute moron. How in the world are they supposed to wear masks? 
Oh, don't be playing that with me. Don't be playing that with me. I don't care if they were wearing masks the last time we were here. I thought the mandate had expired at this point. Not to mention, again, they're dogs. (laughs) Rules are rules. Oh, really? Oh, really? You know, I've tried to be nice to you. I've tried to be calm. Why don't you come over here for a second? Bring me my dogs now. Jimmy, please don't shake your head at her. (sighs) I'm done. I've tried to be nice. I've tried to be civil. I challenge you to a duel. Oh. You want to see my sword fighting at work as you're standing there and acting like you were so much more superior than me? Let's do this. Oh, mother trucker. Okay. Cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is themonsterisla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcasters. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to spread the word about the show. You can also support MIFV on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! So it has come to this. It happens more often than you'd think. Joy challenges people to duels often? Yeah, once or twice a month, but it's normally me in the comfort of her backyard. Well, you better be glad the board's ban on duels only applies to firearms. Although I guarantee they'll add sword fights after this. Oh, hey, Jet. Thanks for clearing out Sarazawa Park for this madness. The last thing we need is a bunch of people recording this and plastering all over a certain Chinese spy network. That'd tick the board off. Say that again. Of course you think Jimmy will win. Wait, you can actually understand him? Uh, sorta? Jimmy wrote a translation guide for the... noises he makes. I've skimmed through it and picked up a few words and phrases. Jimmy tells me it's kind of like Groot speak. Are those cheerleader charades he just did part of the language too? Or was he trying to guide a plane in for landing? Apparently. Hey, guys, look! There are the duelists now! Over by the Daimajin statue! Joy has a duffel bag. What's in- Whoa! A fencing foil? Yeah, she brought it just in case, but left at the resort hotel. 
Of course. Jimmy seems to be unarmed. Are you sure his time in war and space didn't make him crazy? Have you heard my show? No, not really. Seriously? The heck are you talking about, Jet? What? Is that a lightsaber? And are you going to get sued for trademark infringement from Disney? No, it looks like an elongated version of the energy-charged knives Jimmy and his buddies used during the war in space. Jimmy must have made one with a longer blade. He was telling the truth about making a lightsaber. Kinda. Although it's also kind of like some weapons that were used in my first novel. My wife is not happy about that. Good thing she packed her cortosis foil. Talk about bringing a lightsaber to a sword fight. Are you that insecure that you had to cheat? How am I supposed to save my dogs now? Why am I not? Did Dimachine just take a step? The sleeper has awakened. Joy, run! Dimachine is going after Jimmy! Are you okay, Joy? I'm fine, but... Dimachine just swatted Jimmy ten feet! Oh, crap! Oh, look, he's unsheathing his sword for once. And he's raising it over Jimmy. Oh, crap! There aren't any security forces here! Uh, uh, Jet! Save Jimmy! But he's too small to... Oh yeah, I forgot. He's powered by plot convenience, remember? Right. Uh, Diamondine didn't even flinch at that punch. And he's looking at him with the rage face eyes. Oh, crap. Now, Jet is trying to grapple with rage face. This isn't good. Except Jimmy can't stand up, let alone run. Okay, so he really ticked me off. But I want to wish a death on him. Maybe a punch or two. What do we do now? That's it. Joy, when you yelled at Jimmy, Daimaji must have thought you were praying to him about an injustice committed against you. What? Why? He has a thing for women's pleas, remember? Oh, right. In fencing, you're supposed to kill your friends, not hurt them. But then again, he's not my friend. But that means you can tell Dimachine to stop. There's no way, um... Oh, Joe, come on. I'm doing it. And Joy, do you think you could work up some tears? It might help. Give me an onion. I'm an actress. I swear, Nate, if anything happens to Joy, I'm suing this island. The board probably has an army of lawyers, so... Majin, please spare Jimmy. He cheated in sword fighting and pestered me for months, but he doesn't deserve to die. Although, come to think of it, you just got punched a couple times, but you know, that's besides the point. I want you with my careless words. Forgive me for my untamed tongue. Just let Jimmy He's transforming back into a statue. Good.
Jet, take Jimmy to the infirmary. Joy, that was an Oscar caliber performance. I know, right? I know. <sighs> Not everyone can say that they placated the wrath of a giant demon god. Good job channeling your inner drama queen. Honey, let's get the dogs. We're leaving this island. I love you too. Can you feel the love tonight? Hey, that's my line. Can you read my face, honey? Yes, it says that I love you and I think you're the most amazing wife ever. 11 years and you still haven't gotten nonverbal cues. That's what Jimmy kept saying. 